This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. They are the nation's biggest private employer, well-known household corporate name, one known big time to our financial and investment audiences. We're talking about Walmart. It's also a company that is on a mission to become a regenerative company on all levels. So let's get into it with Walmart Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer. She's also president of the Walmart Foundation, Kathleen McLaughlin, and she joins us on the phone from Canada. Kathleen, so nice to have you here on Bloomberg Business Week. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me. It's super to be here. Well, it's super to have you here because you guys see so much uh, in our global economy, have to deal with so much in our global economy when it comes to supply chains. First of all, step back if we could or look back past year. Tell us about the year on your world uh, from your perspective at Walmart and the impact on ESG initiatives. Yeah, well, you know, our focus when it comes to ESG really is on shared value, meaning how do we as a business address the issues that are most important to our stakeholders, the societal issues that are relevant to our business, important to the stakeholders, or we can make a difference through our business? And boy, what a year it's been. Um, COVID, obviously, climate, uh, what we're hearing about nature, equity, economic opportunity for people. You know, we've had it all. And, um, you know, many ways... When, when COVID really struck, we thought, gosh, this is going to make it things really challenging. We have to take a step back. If anything, it's actually strengthened our resolve and had us go faster on just about everything. Well, you know, that's a great point. And I do wonder this last year laid bare things that we knew were already existent, existing in our society, but nonetheless kind of hit us, bam, in the face because we were all at home and kind of taking it in or feeling it. Has it helped in terms of the timelines and the aggressiveness that you can apply to ESG goals at your company? Yeah, it has. You know, as you say, it really has been a moment when all of us, um, you know, had to sit back and take notice. And, and I think we realized a few things. One is the power of individual action. You know, everybody acting together can really turn the corner on something that's global in scale. We learned that with COVID, we're seeing the same thing with climate or equity or other things. So it really did have us um, elevate our ambition. And in many ways, we have moved faster. So, you know, for example, in terms of the response to COVID, um, our first concern was associate safety and could we even continue to operate right. so in terms of PPE and protective equipment, plexiglass, all those kinds of safeguards, um, additional emergency paid time off, leave policies, hiring an additional 500,000 people to put some slack in the system and make it easier for folks to stay home if they felt they needed to and so on. So all of those kind of things. But in terms of our omni-channel transformation to serve the customer well, in a contact-less way, we accelerated our expansion of OGP, for example, uh, online grocery pickup sites. And we now offer that in 3,750 locations. Wow. So right. yeah, we moved faster on that. You know, in terms of climate, we elevated our ambition. We were the first retailer years ago, back in 2016, to set a science-based target for emissions reduction. Um, this last year, we elevated our ambition and said, okay, let's set 2040 
as a date to get to zero emissions in our own operations, not net zero, but zero. Mm-hmm. And let's go faster. You know, um, we did set out uh, a broader aspiration to be to become a regenerative company, which for us means needing to go beyond just being sustainable, but actually build back, whether you're talking about climate or natural ecosystems or equity. Kathleen, and, you know, that's of- huge, right? Like, it's not just about reducing your impact, but then kind of bringing back our climate and our environment. Right. Right. That's just one example. You know, we're now at a point we know from the science that we actually need to draw down emissions, you know, not mm-hmm. just avoid um, further emissions. So it's a, it's a higher bar. And similarly on equity, you know, we um, all felt the impact in a very visible way of what happened with George Floyd. And like many others, it caused us to reconsider what could we do? What could, more could we do with the assets that we have, whether right. it's our jobs, our purchase orders around equity? And it's, it's not a matter of holding steady on equity. We got a lot of work to do, right, to <laughs> elevate people and to redress some of the wrongs of the past and, and really address drivers of systemic racism. Hey, I wanted to ask you, because you pointed out that you guys are working towards zero emissions across your global operations by 2040, you know, without relying on all of those cor- carbon offsets that a lot of companies put into effect and use. Why does it take, help me out here, so that's what, 19 years from now, um, part of me wants to say, and I, and to be fair, I ask this of all the companies when we talk ESG and all the big companies like yourself, why does it take so long? What is so difficult? Because most scientists are saying we're running out of time. If you look at what's going on in the Pacific Northwest, just this like couple of weeks, the flooding in Germany, the flooding in China, yeah, we just maybe don't have another 20 years. Yeah. So let's be clear, 2040 is the date we'll hit zero in scope one and two. It's not the date that, you know, we'll start working on stuff. Right. And scope one and two is direct impact and indirect impact, like through suppliers and things, correct? um, That's scope three. So our science-based target covers all of it. Here's here's what we're doing. And here's to answer your question about 2040. So for our own operations, that includes the electricity to power our stores and our DCs, you know, fulfillment centers and so on. It's our on-site fuels, it's refrigeration equipment, refrigerants, and it's the tractor trailers you see on Mm -hmm. the road that are labeled Walmart, right? It's the heavy rigs that are carrying products around. So all of that getting to zero takes time. Some Mm -hmm. of it goes fast. And by the way, we're working on it every day. So the science-based target has us reducing emissions every year. It's not as if we wait. So you'll see if you look at our reporting We've reduced our um, cumulative admissions since 2015 substantially. You know, right, since we started right. on this. And every year we reduce further. What will take the longest and what requires a technical breakthrough in those categories right. is the long-haul transportation. And Kathleen, you know, it is impressive. You go to your website and you look at the different, you know, programs and initiatives that you guys are working on specifically and making progress uh, in when it comes to your impact on the environment. I do wonder when you set out goals, we had an interesting Bloomberg story uh, last week that just said governments need to get more proactive, that we almost need a response to climate and ESG. We need the government to kind of create crisis programming just like they did for the pandemic to get to to be able to kind of help the world and companies get to goals faster. What's the company's take on that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Science-based government policy that's consistent, sets out a, a predictable operating environment and creates the appropriate incentives, you know, again, aligned with the science is needed. 
Um, we saw it in COVID. I think the same can be said for climate. Um, so having some type of mechanism to encourage climate action is something we would really welcome. Well, and then are there any specific initiatives that you think that the government could be helpful on? Well, I think what you raised in terms of climate action, um, and, you know, I'm not a policymaker. I, I don't know the specific mm. you know, public policy mechanisms that would be best, but something that would um, encourage climate action in line with what we need to get to around a one and a half degree warming scenario. You know, that's what we're shooting for through our own actions. And, you know, I'd say we're, we're going to do what we're doing in line with the science regardless, but I think it would help, especially in some of these areas. I mentioned transportation as one where we need technological innovation to actually achieve our goal by 2040 for certainly long-haul transportation. Having a favorable policy environment for something like decarbonizing transportation would be just an example. Well, it's interesting too, because I've been talking, um, we had a Bloomberg Global Sustainable Summit here recently and talking with the Cisco CFO and the CFO over at AB InBev and their chief sustainability officers as well. And, you know, there's lots of conversations about, you know, using government policy maybe to impact truckers to some extent because they create the the most usage and destruction, if you will, to our roadways when we're talking about infrastructure and how by doing so that might help create more innovation, right, to a more sustainable way. And so I hear what you're saying when it comes to trucking because that's a big initiative and you do wonder whether, you know, government policy along those lines can make a difference, right? Right. So, yeah, and then, you know, coming back yeah, go to ahead. something you were asking me before the, the break in terms of emissions reduction, um, you asked a really good question, which is, gosh, doesn't 2040 seem late? <laughs> Certainly would be late for the action. But the science-based target set out a trajectory that we are following that has us reducing, um, you know, day by day. So, for example, our most recent reporting of our calendar year 2019 emissions, we're down over 12% versus where we started in our 2015 baseline. And Mm -hmm. we're about to come out with our latest numbers for 2020, which you'll see a further decrease. So um, please don't take me as suggesting we wait till 2040. We're we're moving as quickly as we can day by day. That's That's the date we get to zero on our scope one and two. Well, and I have to say what really caught my attention, and we were talking about this in our planning, is you guys are committed to protecting, restoring 50 million acres of land, 1 million square miles of ocean. Uh, you know, you are doing these things um, aggressively. You're thinking about our, our community at large. What really moves the needle, do you think, when it comes to reducing our world, our corporate world, our everyone's impact on the environment? And just got about 40 seconds left here. Okay. Well, Sorry. <laughs> environmental goals. We're now we're now learning that natural ecosystems are as challenged as climate. Mm-hmm. So that's why we set that goal. And it is about rewiring food production, production of other products, so that the way we do that is regenerative to nature. We enhance soil health. We can improve water quality. We can improve biodiversity. That's what's needed. And our secret sauce is Walmart, and we invite other companies to do this too, is to connect the big goals that we have to achieve as society to the practical action we can take through, you know, in our case, business, a retail business. Mm-hmm. And it's true for any company. And that's really what ESG is about and recognizing that those things create value, financial value for the company, as well as help society address these tough challenges. Absolutely. It's why you see, you know, increasingly, right, the CFO and the chief sustainability officer like yourself working hand in hand because they do go hand in hand. Um, Kathleen, I know it's a big world and a big conversation, but thank you so much. And I, I hope we can continue it uh, in the future because it's certainly 
something I know our audience increasingly uh, cares about. She is Kathleen McLaughlin. She's Walmart Executive Vice President, Chief Sustainability Officer on the phone in Canada. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. The world, the financial markets, you know, we've been obsessed this week a bit with the COVID Delta variant and rightfully so. One story in the Bloomberg today warning us that more variants are coming and the U.S. is not ready to track them. This story also a Bloomberg big take and in the upcoming new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg all happening tomorrow. Let's get to it with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Cynthia Coons, both of them in our interactive broker studio. Um it's a must read. There's a lot of information here. Is it a feel good story? It's, well, no. <laughs> okay. I didn't think so. It, it, there is a little bit of kernel of hope in here, but, you know, the thing, Cynthia. I had to dig down. <laughs> it, we, we actually started talking about this story um, a while ago. And the thing that just made me, um, my ears perk up was because at that time, variants, I don't, they were not part of the bigger conversation. Right. And it, and Cynthia was like, you know, there's this the threat that variants are going to come at us. We're going to have m- more than one of them. But the the bigger thing is we don't actually know how to track them, the U.S. Other people actually do do a better job of this. But the sort of the, the takeaway from the story is genetic sequencing is not something that has really been prioritized in the U.S. So the little kernel of hope is that there is this little patchwork quilt that I think we're going to talk about a little bit. But but Cynthia, why is the U.S. not doing genetic sequencing at scale, and and why are we effectively flying blind without it? Yeah, well, it's a money issue. Um, there's no real center now. The CDC has some money from the Biden administration, but they're giving it out. It's not moving very quickly from what I hear from scientists in the field. But when it came down to it, we had these genomic labs at academic universities and they would seek, you know, grants or they would apply for money and they would get rejected. And this happened to so many scientists. I know one turned to crowdfunding, but he didn't get much money from that. Another one actually was very dejected and about to run out of money. And someone who turned her down five months prior because they didn't realize the importance of variant tracking came back and said, wait, wait, we want to give you money. So she reapplied. So it was a lot of really slapdash getting money where and how you could. And it wasn't, hey, here's a substantial amount of money. It's going to be invested through, say, academic centers and different parts of the healthcare system to get this done. Two thi- well, first of all, I feel like you went through, got, went down a rabbit hole <laughs> when it came to labs <laughs> that are trying to do this and put it together. Why is it so important that we do this sequencing? So this is how we find mutations. And so a virus like COVID is changing all the time, and you have to do a lot of sequencing to figure out what's important in that. There are tons of changes within the virus that don't matter. And to matter, it has to be, you know, significant in terms of its infectiousness or how it harms a person. Potentially, they get sicker, things of that nature, or it affects younger patients worse or something like that. There are distinct things that make mutations concerning. But the virus is changing all the time. So you need to be keeping an eye on it in such a huge way in order to get enough data to say that this specific mutation is doing X, Y, or Z to patients. And once you have that data, then you have a better handle on how to enact measures. This is how they decide, say, the mask mandate may come back or there may be longer quarantine times. Versus waiting to see the impact on the population. Is Waiting that, to see is too late because then the disease just continues. Saying, the exactly, exactly. Okay. That's kind of how you would think of it in terms of the best case scenario if public health officials had the information fast enough. Okay. They could lock it down really fast. Granted, 
it feels like we're in a post-lockdown world, but not necessarily. Just in the U.S., it doesn't. It seems like that might not be the next. That might not be a strategy that's readily employed at this stage. But still, it could be if we know we have a highly infectious or highly deadly version. Right. Things could be done to stop it from spreading too quickly. So the some of this sequencing is actually happening in New York, in in Queens, right? Talk to us about the Pandemic Response Lab and the work that they do. It's Pearl for those of us who are cool, Joel. <laughs> right? So Pearl, as it's called, this was an effort by a company called OpenTrons. They do, they create robots that help automate labs. And they basically applied to be a COVID testing center. And they became this Pandemic Response Lab. And they were a COVID testing center for New York City. And they augmented the city health efforts. And that started in the fall. And what happened was early on, they thought, okay, but let's figure out what's going on with mutations. So they tried to, you know, convene with health officials and figure out if they could get some money to start sequencing. And there was just no money for it. Again, coming back to the initial issue of money. Right. So because there's no money for it, but they were actually in a good position, they had a lot of the technology, they decided to set this up and do the sequencing on their own dime. To, to start out. And so they're doing the sequencing and they're giving New York all their data and now they're participating in trying to get funding from other sources, but they did it basically on their own dime, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that's not how businesses typically operate. Right. Who else is doing a good job of this in the US? There's states that are doing better than others, but there's still not there's still a lot of limitations within state-based systems, but Michigan has a really strong system, but it still takes up to two weeks to identify and communicate a variant through the system that Michigan set up. But they are one of the bigger systems. There are some big labs around the country doing a lot of it, like Scripps in California. Um, There's different... um, The Chan Zuckerberg group was doing it for a while. Now they're trying to move into helping educate labs around the country and get up and going. But there are definitely a lot of places that are doing it. The problem is there there's a lack of cohesion to create something that we would consider really a system through which these folks are all participating in the same way. Well, if anything we've learned through the pandemic is that we need like a coordinated response, right? And somebody in charge of it. Where's the CDC or the U.S. government on this saying, well, wait a minute, we do not want this to happen again. So let's create a coordinated effort, maybe led by the CDC and coordinate all of these labs. Yeah, see, this is a piece of the CDC, and they did get this money, and they are going to spend it. But they told me, for example, they're supposed to set up centers of excellence as part of the Biden proposal, which would help bridge the gap between some academic research where this is going on and commercial labs and so on and so forth, state labs. But they're not going to fund that until next year, the next fiscal year. So that's a problem. It's there's there's money, but it's taking a long time to flow through the system. And so basically, you know, someone proposed something to me at one point in my reporting, I thought was really quite an interesting idea. Like, should pandemic preparedness sit inside of these big government groups or should it be its own segment of the government? Should there be an agency around pandemic preparedness? Because if you look at it, and I've covered this through vaccines as well, it's pieces of pandemic preparedness are kind of scattered throughout different parts of the government. Mm -hmm. And we do have a lot of pieces of pandemic preparedness, but we don't have a lot of cohesion, not yet, even after all we've been through. Okay, so there's a little, like I said, there was a little bit of hope. It's not all bad, but, you know, if we know Feeling anything, like, hey, right there's now. some stuff that we could fix now. Um, abroad, does anybody else do this better? You know, are, effectively, I feel like we're flying blind. We don't know what variants are out there, how bad they are, what the what their capacity to spread is. But has anybody else figured out how to do this yet? Or? And just 
Just about 25 seconds. The UK has done a remarkable job. They came out of the gate really early, March, April 2020. They were doing a remarkable amount of sequencing. When we say there's a UK variant, that's just because they've done the work to discover something mm -hmm. that easily could have come from somewhere else. Um, when you think about it, possibly that's the same story with South Africa. So there are some countries and places doing it. We definitely need more of this around the world. We need some flexibility. But technology is also moving quickly. And as we're developing smaller and smaller and more handheld or easily used sequencing devices, perhaps we can get this technology out into the field faster, but it's going to take, you know, money and fingers crossed, leadership. legs crossed, money and money, yeah, money, <laughs> money is what makes it all happen. All right, Jill Weber, Cynthia Coons, check out that story in the new issue of the magazine. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Strap yourself in, everyone, because as he writes, a sloppy summer for stocks is going to test investors' stomachs. Here with more on his thinking, Bloomberg Markets Senior Editor Mike Regan. He joins us on the phone in New Jersey. You know, this is one of those things, you know, Mike, where it's like Monday was one day in the markets, and then Tuesday was a completely different day in the markets, and it's kind of a continuation of what we're seeing today. I don't know. When someone gives you a mission, especially like on Monday, what are they saying to you, Mike? Mike, are we coming undone? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of it, Carol. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, we wanted to make some sense of that volatility on Monday. And really not just Monday, but it, it started, I don't know, a little bit more uh, more than a week ago uh, last Monday. And But even if you go further back and look under the hood of the market, as you full full know, I'm sure – um, it's just been odd to see the shift in leadership. You know, obviously, mm -hmm. there was a lot of optimism about the vaccine early in the year and kind of the sense that, you know, the vaccine would sort of be a switch that would end the virus. We'd all get back to life as normal. These uh, reopening stocks, you know, your cruise lines, your hotels, your airlines, anything else that, you know, involves just getting out of the house would really be in the leadership. Um, and, you know, the bond market given a, sig a similar signal that, you know, good times were on the horizon, yields were rising. So for months, all that has unwound. It's, it's just made a, a big U-turn. Um, so it's kind of a fascinating sort of thing because, you know, the vaccines are progressing. Um, but I think the, the big thing is that the reopening, um, rather than being full steam ahead, sort of flick a switch and everyone's back to normal, um, it's kind of a two steps forward, one step back thing, uh, especially with this Delta variant and, and all the other variants uh, that are cropping up and may crop up in the future in that it's really kind of taken the life out of that reopening trade. So, so the story's trying to trying to make sense of that. At the same time, you know, people are still buying stocks regardless, right? The experience yeah. we've had over the last year and a half is the market keeps going up, but it's that sort of back and forth and volatility among the leadership that I think for a professional investor is very frustrating and very hard to navigate through. Um, and this week is a pretty prime example of that. I mean, again, we're seeing now we're seeing those sort of cyclical energy and financial stocks taking the lead once again uh, with bond yields uh, coming back up a little bit, oil coming back up. But, you know, it's another case yeah. where, like you said, you wake up tomorrow and, 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 and see if it's a take a step back day rather than take a step forward day in that reopening trade. 
Well, the bond market is also fascinating, right, to juxtapose against the equity market. And they obviously go hand in hand. You've got to look at both of them in this environment. But it's interesting, Mike, in terms of how equity investors read the bond market. I mean, we've got the 10-year went, what, close to or hit 130 maybe earlier today. Uh, We're now at 128. Um, But what's interesting is higher rates usually indicate some inflation, the economy getting back to normal, <laughs> but that right. can free. So there's some who, you know, left brain, right brain, some equity investors say, that's good. We're getting back to normal and growth. We, that's what we want to see. But then there's the other side. Oh, wait, now the Fed's going to back off, but we should want to see the Fed back off, right? Because the only reason Fed's been so low and doing all these, you know, quantitative measures is because we needed it because of the pandemic. Right. So how do you look at the two sides of this financial market? I think it's a matter, Carol, of and you're absolutely right. You know, uh, interest rates, bond yields are rising very fastly. That's that's scary. That's bad for stocks. Right. Interest rates are going to rise. But then when they go the other way, when everyone's buying bonds, it's like, oh, well, that's bad. Someone in the bond market knows that, you know, that growth is going to slow and, and, you know, this is all, you know, coming to an end. But to me, I think and I think there's a lot of research that sort of backs this up is what really um, scares people in the equity market is when the bond market behaves in an unexpected way mm-hmm. uh, and in, in a fast way. If, if rates are rising and everyone's comfortable that, okay, we've got a, a rising rate environment, um, they're not going up too fast, uh, but we know what kind of stocks will benefit in that. So, so we'll load on uh, into banks and, and other sort of reflationary trades, and that'll be our leadership. And the, on the other side, you know, the traders in the bond market are thinking similar, and they're saying, "Well, let's short the, the treasuries. Let's let's all load into shorts on, on the treasury market, and bet that they'll go down." So then, you know, when that positioning turns out to be offsides, when okay, all of a sudden everybody is betting on on a drop in bond prices and a rising yields, and all of a sudden they start going the other way. Well, that really just catches everyone on the wrong side of the playing field, right? And so yeah. they have to cover those shorts. And I think that sort of then bounces back into the equity market to some degree. If you, if you have to buy bonds to cover your shorts, well, maybe <laughs> if you're a, a multi-asset hedge fund, you're selling stocks to do that. Hey, just quickly, 20, 25 seconds here. I mean, there's also so much cash sloshing around still, right? That's got to be giving some support to the equity markets, just quickly. I, yeah, to me, that's a, a big sort of undertold story. I looked at the uh, amount of money on deposit at co- commercial banks in the U.S., $17 trillion, uh, a third above where it was at this time in 2019 before the pandemic. So to me, that's, you know, that's a lot of money burning a hole in people's pockets that's going to get spent somewhere. All right. Good, 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 good uh, reporting, as always. And this is in uh, uh, Business Week magazine. Mike, thank you so much for that. Really appreciate it. Bloomberg Markets Editor Mike Regan on the phone in New Jersey. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just about uh, 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. It's been an interesting week already, but again, here we are two days in a row. Uh, we see stocks trading higher after a Monday sell-off. Let's get to it. 
Drive to the Close with David Dietz, back with us, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management. Once again, on the phone from Summit, New Jersey, $9.4 billion in assets under management. Uh, David, so it's been an interesting week. Uh, there's been some concerns about the Delta variant. There's concerns about economic growth here in the U.S. peaking. How do you see it, especially as we are just kind of smack in the middle of corporate earnings? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you had taken Monday and Tuesday off, you'd come in today after Friday, you would have thought nothing had happened when we had a, uh, you know, a terrible day in the markets on Monday. But now we've got two back-to-back days with uh, 90% up volume and risk assets in favor again. Gee, for me, Carol, I mean, basically, that was that extreme focus on the spike in the COVID cases due to the Delta variant. Got people very worried. We heard about more mass mandates dates, potential lockdowns and so forth, plus a plummeting uh, 10-year Treasury yield really spooked investors. But what we've seen here is with earnings overall expected to be up 70% year over year, the best we've seen in terms of year over year for well over a decade, uh, getting some good reports. People are saying, hey, look at these earnings. These companies are powering through um, uh, you know, the concerns we have over the, the COVID virus and uh, 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 the bond market woke up to that. We went from close to 1.1 to uh, well into our 1.28 uh, area, um, right. suggesting that uh, you know risk assets are, are back in favor. Earnings backward-looking outlooks are not. Uh, in terms of what you're hearing on outlook commentary, does it say to you that the growth momentum continues? We expected second quarter numbers to be pretty impressive, correct? I mean, if, if they didn't come in impressive, we'd really have some problems here. Um, but so... In terms of what you're hearing from the corporate community about whether or not the growth continues the second half, does it give you enough confidence to say that the run-ups that we continue to see in equities make sense? So, you know, that really is a great question because, yeah, the problem with uh, announced earnings is they are in the rearview mirror and investors really care about what uh, is going to happen going forward here. But, you know, on balance, um, uh, one of the things we're looking at is the amount of cash that's on corporate balance sheets now. It's huge, biggest since about 2018. And we also like the fact that a lot of buybacks are being announced. Uh, So, for example, you know, Prudential just sold a division. They're going to buy back about 11% of its company in the next 30 months. Stuff like that gives tremendous support. And what we like about that is that shows confidence that they're not going to need that cash for a crisis going forward. It shows confidence in the current valuations of the stocks. And I think it gives investors confidence that there's some sort of floor under the market. Right. But it's not like they're putting it to building new facilities, hiring more workers, giving workers pay raises that trickle down into the economy, David. Come on. You know that. Well, you know... That's true, um, but I've got my investor hat on here, and and sometimes you like it when companies um, are are not pie in the sky in terms of what they can do with the money in terms of expand their business. They're taking a very measured approach, which actually may be the best from an investing point of view. You know, it's great to expand if you know the demand's going to be there, but if you have some expansion, some return of capital, historically, that's been best for stock prices. What does it mean, though, for easing some of the supply chain problems? If companies are not willing to maybe step up and boost what's needed to meet those supply demands, uh, or if they don't get those workers back, uh, how much of a kind of drawdown or pullback will that create on the system that might then pull in some of the economic growth expectations and, and realities? 
Well, well, that you just touched on a key worry going forward, but I think you have to analyze what are all these bottlenecks due to, and it's a myriad of factors, but I would submit that one of them is the fact that a lot of uh, uh, employees, potential employees, are hesitant to go back to work. Uh, All sorts of small businesses in our community are having trouble finding employees. We know with the high unemployment rates that they're out there, but what's going to make them go back? Well, I think the opening up of schools, I think perhaps uh, when uh, supplemental payments from the government start to wane. I think also when we can finally get COVID better under control, knock on wood, please everyone get their vaccines done. Uh, I think that's going to help the bottle change right there. And of course, some of it is, is global right. um, supply chains and, and easing of COVID there is going to help too. Just want to mention a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. We were expecting the Senate Republicans blocking the start of a debate on infrastructure. The Republicans want to finalize a bill before starting that debate. Uh, Chuck Schumer, of course, uh, Senate Majority Leader, can call another vote to debate the bill next week. They were currently voting on the motion to invoke cloture cloture on the uh, motion to proceed with that massive infrastructure, wide-ranging infrastructure bill known as H.R. 3684. Uh, We're talking about aid for highways, safety programs on highways, transit programs and others. But again, Senate Republicans blocking that start of a debate on infrastructure. Hey, David, you know, that has been, I think, one of the other macro trends that we've been watching if we're looking for things to provide some stimulus to the economy and even uh, the financial market trade is infrastructure, which I'm kind of tired of talking about because how many administrations do we have to talk about before whether or not we get something done? Ultimately, do we get something done in your view? Yeah, I do. Um, I think there's a general consensus that your basic traditional infrastructure, uh, roads, bridges, and, and things for the bring the Internet to everyone will get done. I think what the market kind of likes here is the talk about how to pay for it seems to be keep. Uh, being put off. Um, people like my daughter say, you know, why worry about budget deficits? It doesn't seem to matter here. And so I think tax hikes are not going to be anytime soon. And so basically, uh, again, that's a positive tailwind for the market. More government spending and the risk of higher taxes uh, spoiling the party seems to be receding a little bit, Carol. All right. So where would you commit new money right now? Hey, you know, we still like tilting to stocks. I mean, here's the number one thing to know. The dividend yield, the S&P 500, is 1.35. It's rare that it's above the 10-year treasury, which means mm-hmm. over the next 10 years, you're going to get a lot more income in stocks. And then among stocks, we would tilt towards value. Now, why would we do that? It's because valuations uh, are so much favor uh, value versus growth. Now, always since growth stocks generate earnings faster, uh, they have higher PEs. But in this case, they're about 12 percentage points higher than growth in, in, in terms of price to earnings ratio. That's three times what we normally see. Yet actually, um, uh, growth in terms of uh, earnings and growth stocks isn't projected to be that much more than value stocks for the next five years. So I, I think that value offers you better opportunities. So don't forget that sector of the market. So names you like Verizon, Viacom, CBS, uh, Schlumberger, Wells Fargo. Yeah, so Schlumberger, Wells Fargo, traditional reopening stocks. Yeah. I think as the world reopens, you have more energy demand. Schlumberger is your blue chip in that area. Wells Fargo, of course, is your, your one of your best bank franchises, trading not too far above book value, coast to coast. Uh, they're cleaning up some mishaps over the past couple of years, so that's going to take advantage of ultimately higher interest rates. Viacom, CBS, they're in 
talks to uh, perhaps partner up with Comcast streaming overseas. Now, Carol, is that a first day or something that is going to go a little further? Uh, right. Verizon just reported today, great growth in subscribers. Um, if you want a 5G play, which is your right. with, a, with a good dividend, you can't go wrong there. Got to run. David, thanks. David Dietz, Managing Principal, Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC Private Wealth Management on the phone in Summit, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.